Well, good morning and welcome. We've got a lot going on here in the month of October, beginning this week with our Young Adults Conference, and I know that all of you young adults have been invited. Now, if you're here and you're like over 30, come see me, I can sneak you in. Our speakers are phenomenal. You're going to want to uh, listen to them, uh, maybe even access uh, that online, but we're looking forward to what's going to happen this coming weekend. Today we're going to go back to the book of Mark, and here's my theory as I work through the book of Mark, is this. I think that we say that we love Jesus, and it's more of a routine kind of thing we're supposed to do, and why not, you know? But I think the reason why we don't really have this genuine affection for him is because we don't really know him. There's more to him than we've discovered and so as we go through the book of Mark, I'm, I'm personally am asking God to show me how I can know him better and love him more. Today we want to look at Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin in um, uh, verse uh, uh, 9, and it's the baptism of Jesus, and then it's followed by the temptation of Jesus. And here is the point I take away from this section, and that is this. I love Jesus because he made himself one of us. He wasn't aloof and distant. He wasn't afraid to touch us. He made himself one of us. Philip Yancey writes a book entitled Disappointment with God. And in his book, he, he talks about a king who fell in love with a humble maiden. And the story really is from Soren Kierkegaard. And it's, a, it's an amazing way for us to understand what it was like for Jesus, God himself, to come and live among us. And so the story of the king who falls in love with a humble maiden goes like this. First of all, there was no king like this king. Every statesman trembled in his, before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. But how could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body with royal robes, she would not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or she would, she would live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind. Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her in the for, to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with his armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want just a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was the king and she a humble maiden and to let their shared love cross the gulf that was between them. For, if it, for it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king convinced that he could he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. 
He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was, it was no mere disguise, but rather a new identity he took on in order to win her love. Now this king didn't just appear to be a peasant. This was not just a disguise. He actually became a peasant. He worked a job, lived in in an ordinary house. He was not pretending to be a common man. He was living out the life as a common man. And he slowly got to know the maiden and she loved, and that he loved, and she him. And she watched him work hard. She saw him tired in his struggles. She celebrated his success and watched him get over his hurts. Over time, she saw the character of this man and she fell in love with him as he did with her. And then one day the king returned to the palace to prepare to ask this woman to marry him. And when he came back, he had his royal robes on, a crown on his head, and his entourage by his side. And while all of this was overwhelming for the peasant maiden, she looked at the king and saw the man she had fallen in love with. She was able to love her king, who was her husband, because he had set aside his glory to become part of her community. That is what Jesus did. Paul describes this in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. This is the heart of Jesus. To save us, he became one of us. And so as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, we're going to notice how he identifies with us in baptism, how he was identified by God to be the Son of God, and lastly, how he identifies with us in temptation. Mark 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 9 chapter 1 verse 9 it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John on the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water he saw heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. The first thing we want to look at is the fact that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now John was the most successful preacher of his day. He was clear, he was direct, he had integrity, he dressed like Elijah the the ancient prophet, he ate a strange diet of insects and honey. John had been preaching and calling people to a baptism of repentance. They came, and as they came, they came confessing their sins, crying out in humility to God to to wash them clean and, and, and make them whole. And when they got into the water, they went down into the water and came up, 
and their prayer was that their sin would be washed away. Now there was one group of people who did not participate in this, and this were the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They were not about to identify with ordinary sinner types. They were above sinners. They, They did not want to be associated with sinners. They confessed that they had sins and needed to be baptized? No, no way, they weren't gonna do that. They were not one of those sinners. They were separate and above and they thought themselves to be so much better than everybody else. In fact, in Mark chapter two, there's this story where um, Jesus is having dinner at Levi's house with tax collectors and sinners and his disciples and the many people that followed him. And when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they wouldn't. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here Jesus comes and he gets in line with the ordinary people around him. He's walking toward the Jordan and the water and he wants to be baptized. Now, Mark is very brief and there are many more details in the other gospels and I don't want to be tempted to go off and extend this more than it should because one of the things that is unique and powerful about Mark's gospel is the brevity and directness of his gospel. However, I do want to say that it is reported that when Jesus started to approach John, one of the things that John said was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, Jesus marches into the muddy Jordan River where the sins of people had been washed because of their baptisms. And he says to John, I wanna be baptized. To this, John says, that's not the way it should be, Jesus. I should be baptized by you. I shouldn't baptize you. And Jesus insists, John, baptize me so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Now clearly Jesus wasn't needing his sins to be washed away. Scripture is very clear that Jesus was without sin. What was he doing? He was identifying with the sinners. He had come to take on himself in the crucifixion, the sin of the world. He was not aloof. He wasn't allergic to ordinary people and sinners. He came in there with them. That's who Jesus was. Now just so that we're certain that Jesus didn't have sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, he had no sin, to be sin for us so that he might become the righteousness of God. Um, So that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was sinless, but he so loved the world that he was willing to be with sinners and to be identified with sinners. And in his baptism, what he does is he foreshadows a baptism that he would undergo. This was the baptism of the cross. One thing I love about the Bible is how that you can take parts of the Bible that were written hundreds of years apart, bring them together, and they complete the story. 
Isaiah 53 says this. This is what was going on. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus on the cross would be baptized with the sin of mankind throughout all time. And he would die in payment for their sin. But while Jesus was here, he made himself like one of us. You know, I don't like to be around people that think they're much better than me and make me know it. Do you like that? I don't feel like being good friends or having a lot of meals together if all they do is put me down. And most of the time, they don't want to have dinner with me anyway. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I have came, I have come to be with you. Second thing that happens in this passage is that God identifies Jesus in this moment of baptism he identifies him as truly God the Son. Now, one of the most complicated topics in the Bible is the topic of Trinity, the Trinity. Actually, if you try to look in your Bible's concordance for the word Trinity, it doesn't exist. But Trinity is a theological term that we use to encapsulate what God reveals about himself, that though God is one, there is only one God. He, he is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. And if you're confused about now, now welcome to the club. Do you really want a God that is so easy to understand that you get it immediately? I mean, God is so magnificent in his majesty and who he is and how he, how, how he is that we, we are going to forever be trying to figure out the, the unity and plurality of God at the same time. He is one God and he manifests as he, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They've always been in existence together and that's how God describes himself. When Jesus is baptized, in verse 10, it says, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If anybody says, I don't know where the, where the Trinity is in the Bible, you can direct them to Mark chapter one. Because in this passage, we see all three persons of the Trinity coming together at this glorious moment. In fact, this was a supernatural moment because the, the heavens were torn apart. It was as if God invades uh, time in a way that is extraordinary. The Spirit says, the Spirit, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends. Now, I actually, on Thursday morning, meet with our resident students, and we have a great time trying to explore theology together. One of the topics we've been discovering is the Trinity. Oh, I tell you what, uh, the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, I don't fully understand that. To understand a God who is eternal, meaning he had no beginning and no end, I mean, a God who is powerful and sovereign, a God who did not have to create this world. He didn't have to create us. 
Some people say, well, God had to create us because we completed him. He, had, he needed someone to love. Not true. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, they exist at the same time, have for all of eternity. There is tremendous love, fellowship, and genuine community. He is complete all by himself. He doesn't need anybody. He chose to create this world. He chose to create us. Not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. It's an incredible thing to think about. And then we hear the Father speak these words, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know who heard that. I don't know if John heard it and Jesus and everybody around him. It's not specific. I know Jesus heard it and told the gospel writers that that's what the Father said. I don't know if they heard thunder. I don't know if they heard words. And nobody does because it's not very clear. But we do know that there was, a, there was an audible thing that took place and the words are defined. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, as a father, I think it's so important for us to remember that all children long to hear those words. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Our children, as a gift to us, digitized so many of our old VHS tapes. I, I know i got a couple kids in the room now, and when they gave that as our gift, I thought, oh great, we're going to have to watch all these home movies. Okay. And I, I was thinking, I don't want to have to watch all these home movies. But I'm living with my wife who has to watch all the home movies. And amazingly enough, I have loved it. To go back in time and to watch each one of them when they were born to watch their first steps, to watch the path of development that I, I haven't thought about in years. It has been the sweetest, most wonderful gift. And I remember when James was so little, he wasn't very big and, and he had these really awesome round glasses and when he was starting to, to talk and ask questions, he climbed up on my lap one day and he grabbed my cheeks and he held my face and put it right next to his and he says, Dad, you, do you like me? And if you've been around, you'd know I've told this before, but it's just so beautiful. I got to tell it again. Dad, you like me? I said, oh yeah, James, of course I love you. He says, no. Do you like me? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I like you and I love you. I think too many times we all kind of check out because we know God is love and God has to love us, so uh, okay. But I'm not so sure he likes me. And he would speak over you today. This is what he would say to you. I created you. I made you. I like you. I think you have more worth and value than anyone has ever admitted to you yet. And maybe even to yourself. If there's one thing you walk out of here with, I hope it's this. God loves you. And he thinks you're pretty cool.
because he made you. Third, so we, God identifies Jesus as God. The Trinity is present. The third, Jesus identifies with us in temptation. Temptation for Jesus was not just theory or theology or something he observed that Job went through and the other people of the Old Testament went through. Temptation wasn't abstract or academic. Jesus was tempted. He felt it. He understood it. He felt the intensity in the battle of temptation. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. I mean, once again, not very much detail because James is on a roll. He's got more to say and more stories to tell. But the fact is, James says, I want you to know that Jesus went through a season of temptation, 40 days in the, in the wilderness. A, a spiritual war breaks out as soon as Jesus is identified and announced to the crowd. It was an epic spiritual battle in the life of Jesus. It was intense, so intense that angels were dispatched to help Jesus and protect him. You know what's so wonderful about that? Jesus understands my temptation. Anybody here ever been tempted? All of your hands should go up, by the way. You know, that this is a battle that began way back in the garden because Satan has been trying to destroy human beings who are loved by God more than you and I really know. And because God loves us so much, we are the prime target of the evil one who is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy, according to John 10.10. But Jesus had come to give us life and so that we could have life more abundantly than we ever had it. But we live in a battle zone of temptation. Sometimes we get confused. We think that even being tempted is so bad that we better not talk to God about it. Did you know there's, there's a difference between being tempted and sinning? Did you know that? Did you know that all of us are tempted in many different ways? And God, through Jesus, understands this. You and I, even today, I'm 100% sure, we're all battling a temptation. And we're often inclined to run and hide. But really what we need is to go to God and say, here's my struggle, God. Here's my temptation. Oh God, I, I, I need help to overcome this temptation. Because without divine intervention, we don't stand a chance. 
You know, sometimes we may be struggling with like a relationship. Maybe it's a husband and wife relationship. And we think I need to have better arguments. Have you ever thought that? Am I the only one? Man, I wish I would have thought to say that. How many times have we won the argument and lost the relationship? Maybe it's a struggle with your kids. Boy, if I could only develop a more effective reward and consequence routine, I'd get my kids in line. Wait a second here. Maybe that's not the issue. Maybe you need divine intervention. Maybe your temptation is someone has hurt you and honestly, you are mad at them and you have developed a bitterness and a contempt toward them and you smile nice, but it's going on. What if we were to just admit, God, I'm struggling. I'm in the middle of this temptation. I need divine help. What if there's somebody in your life that is so annoying? It's hard for you to love them. There's all kinds of temptations we struggle with. Addictions, habits, all different kinds of struggles. All of us have temptations. This is the part of life. And what do we do with our temptations? We need divine help and help has come in the person of Jesus Hebrews 4:15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses and isn't that great but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin 1 Corinthians 10:13 no temptation has taken, overtaken you except such as common demand. Wow, everybody's tempted. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with te the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. James chapter four says, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, your, uh, your, your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy, joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In our temptation, we have someone who has come to help. Hebrew, I mean, Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And in the Lord's Prayer, we are instructed to pray this, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. You got temptations? Don't run away. 
run to God. You can't do this by yourself. He's ready to help. He understands. You know, this whole idea of Jesus identifying with us, he came to save us. He would not get out of this alive. Jesus knew he would have to die in payment for the sin of the world. It would be brutal and agonizing, humiliating. It was awful. But he came. He came to be one of us to rescue us. When I was a kid in the city that we lived in, Manila, we would drive by this building and everyone knew that that was the leprosarium. You know, leprosy used to be a deadly disease. Thank God for the, the, the improvement in, in, in medicine. It's not that way so much now, although nobody here wants leprosy. It's very contagious. And in this leprosarium, my parents would tell me, you can't go in there because, you know, you could get infected and, and it, it, it will eat up your, your skin and eat up your, your, your body and you could die. Man, as a little boy, I was scared to death. Man, I don't want to go there. Don't drop me off in front of that gate. But then I read the story of a priest whose name was Father Damien. And he became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Hawaii, to a village on the island of Molokai, because they had set up a leper colony. And he decided he was going to serve them, and for 16 years he lived with them. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced their bodies when no one else would touch them. He preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said of Kalawao, be, uh, it had become a place to live rather than just a place to die because Father Damien offered them hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the, the poi bowl, bowl right along with the patients. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close, and for this, the people loved him. Then one day, he stood up and he began his sermon with words he had never spoken before. And on that day, he said, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. He was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they had lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. You know, Jesus came. He never sinned. But sin attacked him. And they took him and they nailed him to a cross. And he died. And anyone came, who came to him, he forgave. 
you forgave. The thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say? No way, can't do that. No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all he needed. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you imagine in the agony of that moment praying that prayer? I love Jesus today because he became one of us in order to save us. I want to ask you to bow your heads if you would.